morning. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I would like to announce that we uh, outside in the foyer we have a table with baby bottles set up. And those baby bottles are for uh, Lifeline Pregnancy. They're a ministry that uh, we support. Last year we did a, a, a fundraiser where we took up uh, clothing and diapers, and uh, this year they have um, this fundraiser idea where they're going to have these baby bottles. And what they want you to do uh, is to take a baby bottle home, uh, fill it with whatever change uh, you want to put in it. Uh, you can put a check, uh, you can put the title of your home, your boat, your beach house, whatever you want to put in there, and bring it back by Father's Day. And, uh, and then we'll take it over to them, and uh, it helps to support their ministries. They have a really great ministry to uh, mothers who uh, have, uh, they're con contemplating abortion. They don't know what to do, uh, and they offer them counseling. They offer them the gospel. They also offer uh, clothing and diapers and, and some, uh, some medical help. It's a great ministry that they are uh, having, and so we, we'd like to be able to help them. So uh, and I'd encourage you to, uh, uh, to take a baby bottle home, and, and if you say, you know what, I just don't have any cash at all, I don't have anything, I can't give anything, uh, that's okay. Just take the baby bottle home and um, ask the Lord to let you find little coins around the parking lot as you uh, go shopping and so forth. Pick those coins up and just bring whatever God has you bring for that uh, for this month and um, and it will be a blessing to them. Uh, we're in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day and thank you for this opportunity that we can have to look at your word. I pray now that uh, your spirit would illumine our minds, that uh, your spirit would give us strength to uh, not only understand your word, but to put your word into practice. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Here we're continuing with our study in Ephesians. I, I do realize that it is Mother's Day, um, but uh, we keep on with our study. Uh, I hope you will have someone that can celebrate Mother's Day with you, um, but we'll focus on, on Ephesians. And uh, here we are in this, uh, looking at this letter. Now letters, depending on their purpose, will have usually a certain form to them. And uh, it, this letter of Ephesians to the Ephesians has a, a certain form that makes it uh, look, uh, it has certain features in it, and one of them is the introduction. It has an introduction who states who it's, who's writing it and to whom is it. Uh, and then in the middle part of the section uh, where it has the body of the text, it can be uh, changed around depending on the purpose of the letter and the content. Depending on those two things, uh, the purpose, the occasion of the letter, uh, the middle part will be uh, kind of different from one letter to the other. But here we see this, this letter, and it has this introduction 
of the author, and the author is Paul. Uh, Paul, we saw last week, is this guy. He's um, a Jew who was born in um, Tarsus, uh, ended up going to Jerusalem and sitting at the feet of uh, Gamaliel. As he developed, he became very zealous for the law. He became a Pharisee, and that's not in a pejorative sense. It's just uh, he, he was really zealous, a conservative person looking to follow the law and follow uh, God. And as he, as he did that, he, he started becoming, he started persecuting the church. In fact, he was there at that day when uh, Stephen was preaching, and he heard the preaching of the gospel, it, and he, he was upset with it. In fact, he, he was standing in approval as the people came and stoned Stephen to death. He was so zealous for his beliefs that uh, he asked the high priest if, if they could give him letters, and he would go up to Damascus to the synagogues and, and arrest these Christians, uh, throw them in jail, kill them. He got those letters, and off he went to Damascus, started traveling north. And on the road to Damascus, he had an experience where Jesus came and uh, asked him why he was persecuting him. Uh, Jesus, uh, Paul's experience there on the road to Damascus totally transformed his life. It, it had an impact on him where he continued to live and live for the Lord. Uh, on that road to Damascus is where he, uh, afterwards, he's there in uh, Damascus, and he then was uh, got trained and came back and started preaching. They tried to kill him. He, he ended up having to sneak out of Damascus. He goes to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's trying to get in contact with the church, but the, the church just isn't really uh, uh, receiving him. And Barnabas comes and takes him in and presents him to the apostles. And that's a really neat uh, story, and it's a real neat study that Barnabas uh, risked himself to go and be involved in Paul's life. As the gospel continued to spread, the church in Jerusalem heard about this uh, spreading of the gospel, and they heard specifically how the gospel was up in, in Antioch, and there was a movement happening there, and they decided to send somebody up there. The church in Jerusalem wanted to investigate what was happening up in Antioch, so they sent Barnabas, and Barnabas goes up there, and he realizes this is something incredible that's happening, and he needs help, and he thinks about Paul. And off he goes up to Tarsus, uh, and he, he goes and finds him. How does he find him? I have no idea, but he finds him, and he starts to uh, ask him to come down to Antioch. Now, I'm not sure what Paul was doing there in Tarsus, other than living with his parents, but I, I'm not sure what he was doing but he puts it all aside and follows Barnabas down to Antioch and is involved there in the ministry for a year. Now, it's at that, while they're there involved in that ministry, that uh, the Holy Spirit comes and moves upon the church to send uh, Paul, uh, Barnabas and Paul out to the mission field. They're going to send them to, to Antioch to go preach. Now, it, it's really impossible to calculate the impact that this had, the, the impact that this small church had on being obedient to sending, because there's two parts. The church has to be obedient to, to send people forth, and then people have to be obedient to go, right? It can't just be one way. Uh, so what was the impact? Well, we've all been impacted by this church's obedience to send Barnabas and Paul into the ministry. And there's no way to really calculate the impact that this little church has had on the cause of Christ. 
Now, what we're going to be looking at today is that Christians will disciple uh, when they submit to God's desire and Christ's sending to announce grace and, and peace. Christians will disciple when they submit to God's will and Jesus' sending to announce grace and peace. It, this first part, we're going to be looking on discipleship because as Paul is writing this, this is a continuation of the, of the discipleship process. He went and preached the gospel to them. He's been in contact with them, and now he's writing this letter. And this letter is part of that process of teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. He's going to get into that so that they can be mature believers. And the first thing we're going to see is that discipleship results by Christ sending. You're going to get people who, who will disciple when they realize that they have been sent by Christ. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, Paul, and then he uses an interesting term, he says, an apostle. An apostle. Now, this causes a little bit of a problem because when we think about apostle, we have a definition of what an apostle is, and uh, we find that definition in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, there's a, a, a situation where they're, they're trying to replace Judas. And as they're trying to replace Judas, uh, Peter gets up and he starts to talk about, uh, about uh, Judas hanging himself and the, the plot of land and so forth. And then in verse 21 it says, uh, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so one of the things that this person that they want to choose is somebody who's, who's been involved in the ministry of Jesus. And uh, from the beginning with the baptism of, of John until the day he was taken up from us, uh, one of these must become witness with us of his resurrection. So we have this kind of uh, uh, qualifications, maybe three you could say, was involved with Jesus' ministry was around the time where Jesus got baptized and was also present of his ascension. So we go back to Ephesians and we say, okay, Paul's saying he's an apostle. The apostles had to find apostle as these three characteristics. In what sense is Paul an apostle? I doubt that he was there involved with John's baptism and watching. I really doubt that he was following Jesus while he was on his earthly ministry. And then to be present at his ascension and, and be persecuting Christ, I, I doubt this. So in what sense is Paul an apostle? Well, to, to look at this, we have to, to consider a couple of things, that words have a semantic range. The words don't usually have just one meaning. They have several meanings. And context always determines the meaning of a word. It, it, it's an it's a interpretive fallacy to throw all the meaning of one word onto a, a word when it appears in a certain context. To grab all the different meanings and, and just bombard it with that and say, this is what Paul is saying. That, that's an exegetical fallacy to do that. But what, what we have to do is look at the context. So as we're looking at the context, the first place to start is just studying what the word is. In, in ancient Greek, the word apostle had this idea of, um, uh, of merchant ships that were sent. Merchant ships that had uh, cargo, and they went from one port to another port. They were apostles, and their purpose was to take the cargo from one port to the other port. And that was it. 
Little by little, though, the word apostle ended up going from ships and cargo to being people with messages to other people. And, and you see that by the time that uh, uh, the New Testament is being written, that this has more an idea of a messenger, somebody that goes with a message from somebody else to another person and tells this message. And now, if you look at the life of Paul, the notion of being an apostle um, doesn't really get developed at his conversion, at his time in Damascus, at his time in Jerusalem, nor in his time in the desert, nor in his time in um, Tarsus. We don't see him calling himself an apostle, an apostle hanging out with his parents in Tarsus. You don't see that. The idea of apostle doesn't really get uh, started with Paul until he is sent from the church in Antioch. So it seems like in this context, it has more the idea of being a missionary, somebody sent out. In fact, uh, we see this idea of being a messenger where, where Paul and uh, Barnabas got, are called apostles in Acts 14, 4 and verse 14. Uh, Luke didn't forget what Peter qualified as the apostolic office. Rather, these are individuals, he's using the same term with two different meanings of these individuals are being sent out. And they're on their missionary journey as they're preaching the gospel. So here, we're not talking necessarily about an apostolic office, but rather this Paul who has been sent. And he's sent by, it's, in a, it's possessive, it has this idea of, of Christ. It's, it's, it's not that he has sent himself. It's not that he has commissioned himself. It's not that he has decided what he's going to share and what he's going to talk about and what his message is. He is restricted by the possessive of, of Christ Jesus. And that's an important thing. He, he doesn't get to just determine what message he's going to go and tell people. You know, I, I see that you guys have needs of water wells. So I'm going to preach to you the needs of clean water. And I see that you guys over here have this other social issue justice, and I'm going to preach to you. No, it's possessive. He's an apostle. He's somebody sent of Jesus Christ. Therefore, his responsibility is to represent Jesus Christ. His message has to be uh, coincide with what Jesus Christ wants to communicate. He doesn't get to determine what his message is going to be, or his agenda. It's limited by who sent him. Now, it's interesting to look at uh, uh, the, the sender. It says Christ Jesus. This is interesting because Christ is, is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, which means uh, the anointed one of God. Now, in the Old Testament, there's uh, different offices that were anointed. One of them you see in Leviticus 4, 5, the high priest was an anointed one, and he would offer the sacrifices once a year. Also, the kings in Israel were anointed. 1 Samuel uh, 24, 6, uh, David is talking about not hurting God's anointed. It's, it's this word. So th there's a sense here that Paul is saying he is sent by Christ, who is this Messiah, this anointed one, and it carries two different ideas. One, the idea of priesthood, and the other one of king. And 
Jesus fulfills both of those roles, both of those offices of being our high priest and king of kings. Now, as we look at this, it, this is very interesting and shocking because when we are introduced to Paul, he's antagonistic against Christ. He, he's not trying to promote Christ's agenda. He's trying to squelch it. He's trying to kill those who are following Christ. And now he's saying that Christ, that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God is Jesus. That's who, who he's identifying. Now, Christ being anointed, it goes in hand with Psalm 2, 2, where it talks about God and, and his anointed and how the, uh, the, the people are against him. It, it sets up a, two different persons, okay? Two different persons. One God, but two different persons because you have Christ who has been anointed, and we'll see later on that there's also a mention of God, which later on is mentioned God our Father, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a doctrine out there that kind of has this uh, weird notion about uh, the Trinity that uh, there's one God and he uh, appears in different forms. Uh, so just as I am a, a husband and a father and a pastor, so uh, depending on the necessity, God sometimes presents himself as the Father or the Son or, or the Holy Spirit, but that's not the case at all. It's not like he's gone and anointed himself. Rather, it's one God with different persons. Jesus Christ, being anointed by the will of, of God. Now, here we see that uh, Paul is identifying himself with the Messiah. Where Paul gets his authority is from the one who sent him. The sender gives Paul the authority to say what he's going to say. Now, there are many authorities in our life, but we don't always listen to them, right? Uh, there's the famous uh, Ford Bronco scene there in California going down the highway with a bunch of uh, police cars chasing after it, right? And then at the end of the whole chase, what, what was the testimony? I didn't know they were chasing me, right? Uh, <laughs> I thought they were going to go around me. Uh, sometimes the authority is present, but we don't want to listen to it. We don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to obey it. Uh, this is not the situation with Paul. He's not saying, well, he's an authority, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Rather, there's a submission. He is an apostle sent by, uh, of Christ Jesus. There's a submission to that, and he's going to do it. Now, to whom is he being sent? In this letter specifically, it says to the saints who are at Ephesus, uh, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the, the saints who are in Ephesus. Let's contextualize a little bit Ephesus and the ministry that happened there. We won't go into a, a bunch of detail, but uh, you'll probably want to look in the back of your Bible to that map section. You'll want to find where the area of modern-day Turkey is, and you'll want to look at the western side of it on the, on the coast there. You'll see the city of Ephesus. It was uh, at this time, during this uh, time of Paul's writing, the third largest city of the Roman Empire, with a population around 250,000 uh, 250, people. And uh, Paul was involved in, their, in, in this church plant. Now, it, what's interesting to know about Paul's relationship with Ephesus 
is, is how much involvement there was. And not just by Paul. Paul first arrived at Ephesus during his second missionary journey. And he spent some time there. We don't know exactly how much time he spent there, a couple of Sabbaths. He was there involved with discussing with people, and then he takes off. And we see that in Acts chapter 18, 19 through 21. Then in Acts cha chapter 19, uh, sorry, that was Acts 18, 19 through 21. In Acts 19, 1, Paul's on his third missionary journey, and he stops off there again. We know from Acts 20, verse 31, that he stayed there three years, and he was teaching them, and he was involved in their ministries. Uh, there in, in uh, Acts, uh, we see that uh, as the development of the ministry happened, there was a, a silversmith named Demetrius. And, and the gospel was having such an impact on people that they stopped buying idols of the goddess Diana. It, and it was starting to affect his wallet. It, and he started a riot there in Ephesus because people were being converted and they stopped turning to idols. They were worshiping the Lord. A huge riot came out. So Paul was involved in the ministry at Ephesus in his second missionary journey and in his third missionary journey. Was that the conclusion of it all? Is that where he just kind of stopped and had nothing else to do with them? Well, no. We also see over in Acts chapter 20. Let's go to Acts chapter 20. Because there's an interesting um, thing that happens here as he calls the elders of the church. Now, here he is on his way from, Mile uh, uh, from Miletus. He, uh, verse 17, he sent, for, uh, sent to, the, uh, to Ephesus and called uh, to him the elders of the church. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and as he's on his way to Jerusalem, he stops off and calls, has the elders called. And so the elders make their way there, and he's going to have a conversation with them. And we see this conversation found over there in verse 28. Now it says, uh, Be on guard for, for yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Um, now, there's several things to note here. One of the things is that um, he, he tells them to be on guard, and he's supposed to be on guard for the flock. So the, the elders are over a flock. And as they're older, over this flock, it's the Holy Spirit who has made them overseers. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one that does this. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, in 1 Timothy 3, 1, you see that there is the desire, the aspiration to become an elder. And there's two things that are happen. When, it's, when God decides to use somebody as an elder, there is the Holy Spirit calls that person to that ministry, to that office. And then the second thing is that there is a desire of the person to fulfill that office. They go hand in hand. The Holy Spirit works in calling that person to an office, the office of an elder, and the person has a desire to do that. And, and what goes with that desire is a list of qualifications that the person has to meet to be an elder. He tells them, it's the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. That's the word bishop. It, what's interesting about this is that uh, in one context, you have the elders uh, are addressed as elders and as overseers. 
So it, it equates the two terms. When you have in one context one group of people being called by two different names, it equates that so that they're one and the same. Elder, a bishop, a bishop's an elder. And what is the responsibility of an elder? What's the responsibility of a bishop? It's to shepherd. What's another word to shepherd? To pastor. Pastor the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It's making Christ God, because he's the one that purchases it with his blood. The responsibility of the elder, of the overseer, is to shepherd, to be involved in pastoring. That's not, that's not by, by distance, you know. Uh, you know how, how's that doing over there? That, that's an intimate relationship, being among them. Why? Why are they supposed to shepherd? Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. So there will be a threat from the outside to come in. You have to be present. You have to know people. You have to know the sheep. How, how will you know what's going on if you're at a distance? You've got to know because they're going to come in, in among you. And they're not going to come in with a big old tattoo on their forehead saying, I'm a wolf. They'll come in and say, hey, brother, how you doing? I just want to serve the Lord with you. And not only are they going to come in from outside, but verse 30, and from among your own selves, men will rise. There's a threat from the outside. There's a threat from the inside. And the responsibility of the shepherd, of the elder, of the bishop, is to shepherd them. He admonishes them. He's, and verse 32 says, And now I commend uh, you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. The elder, bishop, pastor's responsibility is to Give the word to build people up. That, that's, the, that's the job. That's the responsibility. To give the word. What, what do you need? You need the word. Why? Because wolves are coming. And, and then inside here, there's people that are going to be corrupting themselves. They're going to read weird stuff. They're going to watch stuff on YouTube, and they're going to go off to La La Land. And then they're going to share that with you. And it's like, no, you need the word. And that's what, what the elder bishop pastor does. He presents the word. So we have his second missionary journey. We have his third missionary journey, three years. Then he meets with the elders. And at that point, that's when Paul just kind of stops dealing with the church at Ephesus, right? No. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, that he sends Timothy there. Timothy is involved in the church. His disciple, the one he trained, the one he had traveling with him, he sends him there to be working in the church. Church tradition has John, the beloved apostle, go to Ephesus and is ministering there in the city uh, among the church. He's there. The, the one that, that rests his head on Jesus, he's at Ephesus ministering. It's incredible to see all, all these points of contact with this one church. And then after that, there's, there's nothing else, right? There's one more reference. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, 
Jesus himself addresses the church. And he says, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, that you put uh, to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false, and you have persevered and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. That's an incredible thing that they have accomplished. Some guy gets up and they start preaching, and they're able to immediately detect, hey, that's wrong doctrine. That's falsehood. And they don't have a Bible like this where they can be turning. So the, the, the content of doctrine, of scripture knowledge that they have in their head as they're listening to this person, he says, I'm an apostle, and he, and he starts waxing eloquently. They can point out, uh-uh, you're not. They've endured. They've gone through hardship. That's an incredible thing. But what's the problem, verse 4? But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. See, they had a bunch of doctrinal knowledge. They had a bunch of Bible stories. But none of it led them to love God more. It didn't. They, they could tell you all the stories about Nahum and about Jonah. They can tell you about David and the caves and, and with Goliath. And, and they can go through about the, the feeding of the 5,000 and they can go through all the stories. But it doesn't lead them to love God more. It's just a bunch of information that they have up there. And that's, that's what's sad, is that there's many churches that are very orthodox that have no love for God. And if we were to try to go over and try to find the First Baptist Church of Ephesus right now, it's not there. What, what happened? It had second missionary journey, third missionary journey, contact with the elders. It had Timothy. It had John. It had Jesus writing... And where is the church today in Ephesus? We don't know. I think that's a sad thing because it's a warning to us. We can be able to cross all our T's, all our theological T's and all our theological I's, dot those, and just not love God at all. And that's sad. It doesn't lead a person to have a deeper walk with him. They can maybe even diagram all the dispensations or maybe tell about all the covenants, and yet there's not a deeper love and walk with the Lord. And looking at this ministry, he's writing to Ephesus, to the Ephesian believers, and he, it's a ministry that he was involved with very intimately. Now, he writes to them, and he addresses them by two things, going back to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, he addresses them by two things. First, he calls them saints. Saints, those who are holy. Now, this is not because they are actually holy, but rather because they have been set apart. They've been set apart by God. And they are 
set apart for something that he wants them to do. They're dedicated, consecrated to the Lord. That's an important thing to think about because the one who redeemed them, who has purchased them, who sent his son to die for them, they have been set apart. They're not their own to do whatever they please. Many times we think of ourselves as wanting to do whatever we please, but these are saints. They've been set apart. Uh, and it says, who are faithful. Now, faithful is an interesting word, and it kind of has two connotations. Uh, faithful can have this meaning to being uh, faithful, but it can also have the meaning of the believing. Uh, to, they, they believe in something. Uh, as you look at the, the content of the letter, the letter is not really about unfaithful Christians and faithful Christians. And furthermore, it's not like there's uh, this, uh, he's writing to the saints, and he's writing also to the ones who are faithful. You know, like, there are some saints that aren't faithful, but I'm writing specifically to the faithful ones. That's not the point that he's saying. Rather, it's the ones who are saints, that is to say, the ones who are believing in Christ Jesus. The letter does make, the content does provide a differentiation between those who believe and those who don't. Those who are in the kingdom of light and those who are in the kingdom of darkness. It does make a contrast between those who believe and those who do not. So a better translation would be who are believing and their belief is in Jesus Christ. Again, that limits what they're believing in. They're not believing in all the religions of the world leading them up to something some existential feeling. Their belief is in Christ Jesus. It limits it. It cancels out everybody else. And that is what their faith is in. Jesus Christ and what he did. Who is Paul addressing? Who is he sent to? He is sent to the believers in Ephesus who are saints and believers in Christ. Now, discipleship results by Christ sending. Christ sends all to disciple and he, and he sends some to disciple cross-culturally. The Great Commission is to make disciples. And uh, if you ever ask the question, am I sent to go disciple somebody? The answer is yes, you are. Everybody has been, if you are saved, you have been sent to go disciple somebody. The question is, are we going to obey? You look at the last, uh, what, five months? Where, where we're in? Five months, right? In the last five months, hopefully you can start pointing out people that you've been involved with in their life. You can think, yeah, I've helped this person obey what Christ has commanded. I've engaged this person, and, and I'm helping this other person. And hopefully each of you all can say, yes, I am discipling. Hopefully you're not saying, well, I'm too busy. Or, you know what, uh, there's been a pandemic, and so I, I can't disciple right now. Or maybe you will say, well, I, I don't want to disciple. The question is, are you going to be obedient to what God has said? Now, as we think about this, everybody is called a disciple, but some are, are called to disciple cross-culturally. Uh, Alex and I were, and Angie were in a uh, conference, and Paul Walsh preached. He talked about two different people. One group of people, they, they stay in the fortress, right? And they protect the fortress. They build the wall up because there's a, there's a dragon outside. 
And that, that dragon is looking to destroy. And so there's, there's a group of people that protect the fortress. But then there's another group of people. And the group of people, they leave the fortress and they go into the dragon's den, into a lair. Because there's people trapped in with the dragon and they're going to rescue them out of there. <coughs> Everybody's called to disciple, but some are called to disciple cross-culturally. This going out and, 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 and working in these people's lives, this is what Paul did. Now, Christians need to respond to their sending. These, this discipling happens by the will of God. That word, will of God, it's a... Uh, is, is interesting. It happens seven times in six chapters. It talks about God's desire, and we'll explore that a little bit more. God's desire was to send Paul uh, uh, by, by the will of God to these saints. And, uh, excuse me one second. Oops. I got my water bottle over here. Can I finish five minutes? I can finish five minutes. <clears throat> Bear with my throat. Because uh, if I get a sip of water, it'll lead on to 15 more minutes. Huh? So you'll, you want, you'll just d deal with the, the sound right now. <coughs> the will of God to send Paul. He, he has sent him. God has sovereignly worked in his life. He sovereignly brought him to salvation, sovereignly trained him, had Barnabas find him in Antioch. All that Paul is is through the sovereign will of God. And God has sovereignly willed in our lives, too. You, do you really think that by chance you're in the home that you're at? Or in the career that you are? God has orchestrated all these things so that you're in contact with people, so that you can disciple them, so that you can train them. Now, what is the message that we're supposed to give? The message is verse 2. <coughs> it says... Uh, grace to you and peace. The message is grace and peace. The message of salvation is, is grace, that we needed salvation to be able to be saved, and it gives us peace with God. You need that to start your walk with the Lord, and you need that to continue in your walk with the Lord. You need that to evangelize to the lost, and you need that also to disciple those who are saved. They need grace and peace. That's the message. And they have that through the God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> Paul was sent and he obeyed. And the question is, will we obey? Christians will disciple when they submit to God's desire and to Jesus' sending to announce grace and peace. Let's pray. Father... I pray now as we reflect on your word that your spirit would work in our minds. Father, if there's someone here that's not saved, that today will be the day of salvation. Father, maybe many of us here have not been discipling. We've been busy with other things and we have just thought somebody else should do it. Father, I pray that we'll repent of that and that we will look to obey you and be looking for those who we can give the message of grace and peace in their lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.